This is session five of Technology-Enabled Blitzscaling, a Stanford University class taught by Reid Hoffman, John Lilly, Alan Blue, and Chris Yeh. This lecture recaps the family stage and introduces the tribal stage. Alan Blue talks about the early days of LinkedIn, and John Lilly talks about the early days of Mozilla. This podcast has been produced by Greylock Partners. For more podcasts, class notes, slides, and videos, please visit greylock.com. Okay, good. So thanks. Uh, third week. So uh, the first couple of weeks, uh, no surprise. I think a lot of people knew the material. Um, we intentionally went and found three investors that we thought were important and impressive and we respect a lot, Anne and Michael and Sam, to give different perspectives on how they think about the work, how they think about startups. And I think a lot of the feedback we got was you can see a lot of the themes that we're saying, some of the repetition, and people wanted more and more specificity. So today you're going to get a ton of specificity. We're going to talk a lot about Mozilla, which is a story that I know really well, and I'll explain uh, in great detail uh, why it's important in this new phase, the OS2 sort of 15 to 150 person stage. And I'd like this to be as interactive as possible. So um, it's, you're not going to find a person who knows it quite a lot much better than I do. And so lots of questions would be good. Um, and then, uh, so we'll do a little recap. We'll do a little intro to OS2. We'll do a lot of Mozilla. And then Alan's going to um, have a lot of specifics around scaling and resourcing. And one of the, one of the things that you're going to find is that there's abstract comments that are actually abstract. There are, abstract com there are specific con comments that sound abstract. And then there's specific content, uh, concepts that don't, don't generalize that well. And so we're going to talk about a lot. And the, the trick will be, you're going to look, we're going to go into a lot of specificity and generalizing out from that, that'll be the key. But I think you'll find that, especially now as you move from investors to operators, things are going to start moving more and more quickly and more and more specifically. And then we'll prep for Thursday. That's it. So what, um, let's make this as, most inter as interactive as we can. So what themes do people feel like were very, very common across Sam, uh, Anne, and Michael in the last couple of weeks? Move fast. Move fast and specifically make decisions quickly, right? What, what, what else? Uh, relentless and realistic user focus. User focus, right. So making sure that you build something people care about. Fire fast, too. Make sure you're managing your personnel well. Firefest. Firefest. That's interesting. Was that a theme that was a, was common? I don't remember. Sam did. Yeah, Michael maybe did too. Yep. Mm -hmm. So fire fast, fire quickly. Other themes that were common? Uh, don't start a company bursting out of you. Yeah, don't start a company that's just bursting out of you. I think that would, you each got a different flavor of that specific comment. Other things that were common? Don't do it alone. Don't do it alone. Unless you are, unless that's, that's the deal. Yeah, unless you are alone. Yeah. Yep, that's a good comment. Yep. <laughs> Forever alone. Uh, <laughs> the uh, authenticity of the, the founding story. Yeah, authenticity of the founding story. That's interesting. I guess that did come up, certainly with Michael. Less so with Anne and, and Sam, right? Other things that were... Yeah, okay, good. Just a strong focus on product. Product development, product market fit. Ignoring everything else. Yeah, what to ignore is a, is a key. Um, I think everybody who's gone through this journey realizes that there's, you're trying to find, uh, pile about 40 pounds of work into about a three pound bag. And so figuring out which three pounds to take with you is key. So let's, let's, um, you know, let's go forward. So here's the ones that, oh yeah. So what, were the, what was most divergent across the three of them? Yeah, diversity and how, and how much diversity matters, I think is a, is a key. I think actually it's a, it's a pretty, I think it's a pretty controversial topic everywhere. I think people don't have a good sense of what, what the real um, benefits and costs of diversity are so early. What else is divergent? 
Yeah, that's right. So Anne, Anne had a structured theme, which was how do you build proprietary advantage, proprietary power, whereas Sam um, just wants you to build things that people love. Yeah, that, I think Sam has, Sam has a much simpler frame. And actually, that matches Y Combinator's frame in a lot of ways. Build things that people love, the rest of it works out. We'll, we'll, we'll see. There's lots of ways that that's true and lots of ways that it's not so true. Other things that were divergent? Uh, the early financing structure. So Michael hated on SafeNotes, which Sam <laughs> came up with that YC. Yeah, so Sam invented SafeNotes, which Michael hates. That's true. You guys really liked the financing discussion. That, that was surprising, but I guess shouldn't be that surprising in retrospect. Financing is not that interesting, but we can talk about it a little bit more if you guys want to. So, um, yeah, sure. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. So Michael and Michael and Reed diverged a little bit on how to make decisions inside the company, where you said Michael said, let the markets win. Reed says, internal inside yeah, internal market. I, I, I wonder if Michael really meant that. I mean, Michael really, really believes in markets. Uh, really, really. <laughs> um, but, and Reed like, really believes in how smart he is as a single founder, and, <laughs> and, people, and people like him. And it turns out it's pretty true. Um, people like Reed are very good at making decisions very fast. Um, so that's an interesting, interesting difference. Other, other uh, divergences? All right, so let's, let's, let's move forward then. Sure. Oops. All right, so, um, so let's see. We talked a lot about, um, we talked about a bunch of things in this sort of OS1 phase, which is this small phase, um, but things are about to move more quickly. Um, just to remind you where we are, we had five phases we're gonna be talking about during the quarter. So we talked about the OS1 phase quite a bit. Um, we're going to do basically two weeks on each of these, and we're changing our focus right now to what makes OS2, organizational scale 2, what it is. Um, those numbers, again, are just ballparks. They're just like ways in which you can sort of identify kind of roughly where somebody actually is. Um, but I think one of the things which really changes is what you're focusing on. So when we talked about OS1, this is basically what we were talking about. So got to identify a non-obvious market opportunity. Um, where you have a unique advantage or approach, right? So remember when Anne went through her uh, types of power in an organization, she talked about proprietary power. In a lot of ways, this unique advantage or unique uh, market is a great example of proprietary power. And it's actually a big component. This is essentially proprietary power. And the second one is product power, that ability to build customer fit between the product and the market. Um, just as an example, just to remind people sort of where we are, if you're talking about LinkedIn in this, what we're talking about was we had a market. It was basically, we thought it was every professional. Um, every professional would be doing search on a regular basis. Our unique approach was to build a social network in order to build up a huge search space in order to allow people to do it. And our product market fit was with people who wanted to search. Again, we thought that was everybody. It turns out that that was, turned out to be recruiters for us. But that's an example of those various pieces. So now you've got this plan and you've got this notion of value. People have read The Lean Startup, I assume. Um, Eric, when he talks about, <clears throat> he talks about two concepts you need to test early in the process. The first one is a value hypothesis. The value hypothesis is, can I actually provide value to the people who are in my market? The second one is the growth hypothesis. And the growth hypothesis is, okay, we've got a product market fit, we've got value, how are we actually gonna get to the next scale? So this is really the message for OS2. The core concept is, I've got something which is working in the market. How do I effectively get it to large market scale? 
So pretty much everything we're going to be talking about when we talk about uh, OS2 scale companies is how you go from a great idea with good product market fit but in a limited space, getting out to extremely broad uh, growth, and basically delivering that value to everybody. There are three parts of basically what you need to do. So the first one is you need to create a plan for growth. You need to execute it, learn from it, rethink it, and build market share. So there's a lot of information about this. Eric talks about it in his book. We're going to be talking about it today, specifically about how Mozilla grew. Um, the second thing is you need to adjust your product market fit as you go along because you're going to learn things about it. One thing which is crazy about all this stuff is that everything you think you know about your plan and everything you think you know about your product market fit is up for debate. So you're going to learn that, and the importance of being able to learn effectively from the situation and react to it quickly is truly essential. The third thing you have to worry about is you have to worry about competition. Because you're now in a position where you actually probably have other startups who know who you are and know what you're working on and find the space you're in actually interesting. The question is, how do you actually make sure that you get to market share before they're able to get to market share? And I know this is a big component of what we're actually talking about today with Mozilla. The key component of this is being able to move really, really quickly. Okay, so this is the basic goal for, for OS2 and what you actually need to achieve. How do you do it? Well, you kind of have to become the tribe. You need to have more resources to be able to get things done. So it means a bigger team in order to learn and build effectively. It means new functions that you haven't had to have before because you need to interact with customers at a large scale, whether you're an enterprise software consumer. Go ahead. Uh, this is on the previous slide. I was just curious, um, with the competition stuff, are there certain things that early competitors on LinkedIn that you, you know, in hindsight, realize that they did wrong? Specifically, or? Mm -hmm. um, so we can talk about it. So we, so we had exactly the so situation. The, so the question Sorry, was, repeat the question. Um, <clears throat> so were there early competitors to LinkedIn? Basically people who we saw, <laughs> who what, we think uh, we, and why did they mess up? So um, yes, the answer is yes, there were a bunch. When we launched LinkedIn, within two or three months, there were three other competitive products, all of which were heading for the same space, which entered the market during that time. Well. They were all tier one. They were all tiny little companies that were trying to build product market fit. They never scaled. None of them scaled fast enough. And none of them scaled fast enough. It's a race to scale. It's a race to scale. And the reason that it actually worked out for us and it didn't work out for them is because we took this very seriously. This idea that you have to grow in order to generate value. They moved very quickly to advanced features. Or they moved very quickly to how do I monetize this without actually locking in the market share necessary to make the thing successful. So they were trying to build features on top of it and try to sell the product before they actually had effective value to sell. And that meant we got to continue to concentrate on growth, which is how we were able to exit the OS2 phase did they all do that and move on. They actually did different stuff a little bit. So two of them did that. One of them had an approach which simply didn't work. And there was a fourth one which basically had, actually two of them had approaches that didn't work. One of them thought the entire social graph lived inside the enterprise. It's called Visible Path. And basically, its whole idea was mine people's email to discover what those connections are and auto-generate your, uh, your group. The problem, you auto-generate your, your social graph. The problem was that in order to do that, they had to get inside each company and inside each email service to be able to actually make it happen. So it was too slow. The other one was called Spoke. And Spoke was entirely focused on one vertical and not a diverse network. It was only for salespeople. So basically, no one else wanted to be part of it. Um, so they couldn't effectively grow. They had built something into their approach which prevented them from growing. But another piece that I think people don't talk about a lot here is that it's a little confusing figuring out who your competition is. Do you want so, to step? I don't know if I yeah, can see Yeah, sorry. It. So I remember in 2007, I was with Reed talking about his growth, and he was really 
really thinking about how to grow faster at LinkedIn because they clearly left Spoke and those guys behind at yep. that point. But Facebook was what he was thinking about a lot. He's like, why aren't we growing? I don't even, I don't even remember. In 2007, we had about three and a half million. Yeah, so four million. So he's looking at Facebook. And he's like, well, Facebook's growth is much, much faster. Do we need to get on a trajectory there? Do we need to go to college? That kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. Facebook looked like a clear competitor, which in hindsight was not right. Facebook yep. isn't really competitive. It's a separate, separate quasi-competitive. Along those same lines, I think we talk a lot about product market fit, like Sam said, build something that the users want. Yep. But how do you address market choice being really more of a choice that you're making about who are my competitors? Is oh. a competitor, or do we just not care about that? So, so the question is, you, ch- you sometimes choose your market, and you choose your competitors at some level, but the truth is, you, you don't really do that so much as you're customers do but yeah. well and so this actually goes back to the very first idea up here is this non-obvious market opportunity with a unique approach is actually the bet that everybody makes at the beginning you have a market you're actually trying to reach you have a unique way to do it the question is is your way going to be more successful than this way over here you are in fact choosing the competitors and basically defining the competitive space when you pick your approach for linkedin it was build a social network in order to build a huge search space which was different than the so. So, um, it kind of depends. I'll tell you what happened in LinkedIn's so case. The question is the balance okay. between what the what the founders think is the market and what users are telling them is the market. Yeah. So the really challenging thing for LinkedIn was that we actually had, truth be told, pretty weak product market fit in the early days. We didn't, this is why we, one of the reasons we didn't grow. And when we get to the end, we'll talk about growing through value, which matters a huge amount. Facebook, all, um, any messaging platform you look at right now, they're all growing through value. The reason there's 700 million people who are using WhatsApp is that people, to get their value, they attract their friends into the system. That didn't exist on LinkedIn because the value was search. We started with an empty search space and the growth of LinkedIn was to build the search space in order to get the product market fit. So in some ways, we didn't have a feedback loop which is telling us what the value was except saying there's no one here who I want to find. And so that's what we basically paid attention to is we, we trusted our original ab- approach, but all we could do is we could just move forward and say, we're going to get the value someday. Yeah. So there are some people, you know, like Sam, who says, you know, find a very small group of, or a small group of users, yep. Yep. Um, so I guess like looking at the building LinkedIn, yep. um, you said you really didn't have great product market fit from the very beginning. It sounds like your strategy. We, all, we had potential product market fit. Potential, right. Yeah, because we had identified, for instance, recruiters are a great example. Recruiters absolutely loved the concept of the product, but the problem is when they went in and searched, the search space was too small. But the product market fit was actually there, but only with, this, with specific people who could envision what it would be like when we had a ton of people in the network. Exactly. When you weren't necessarily sure whether or not the product market is there. Yes. And if that's the case, um, I guess like, in, in, what, in what cases, you know, in what instances does that actually make sense? Does it make sense? You know, some people say- in what cases does, so the question is, in what cases does it make sense to focus on growth rather than focusing on product market fit? I would really, I, I think that the LinkedIn case was actually a fairly unique one. Um, but I don't know, John, you can talk to more examples that are actually get the out product there. right. Get get the product right because yeah. if you if you like getting the we're focusing on growth before you get the product right is a s- excellent way to 
takes yeah. away a ton of money. And the like, only reason you just keep pouring it in and people just don't use it. And that, that's probably gotten more and more and more acute as the number of startups has exploded. And the, but, only, and the but, only reason we did it is because we knew that we had to get to growth before we could get to product value. And, and, they, and they found their super user. So I mean, LinkedIn found... And we'll talk about so, that a little bit. Yeah, so we'll, we'll wait. We'll hold this and we'll come back yeah. to it. So three things you need to do. Becoming a tribe requires you to bring on new capabilities and new services, which means expanding the group. Certain kinds of investments in technology. Business operations. Um, basically, now that you've got between 10 and, and 50 people in the company, you need to have an office. You need to have keys and so people can get into the damn office. The reason this is important is that basically you're kind of setting up two teams. So you have team one, which is basically the team which is affecting, which is working on the scale and the growth. Then you got team two, which is defending team one. Team two is there to make sure the founders and the engineers don't get distracted by having to deal with things like ordering food in on a regular basis. So we got two, that's what number three is. And then the right financing and capital allocation because at some point you're going to pay all these people a salary. Your financial needs are different in the world of OS2 than they were in OS1. So with that, we should talk about Mozilla. Okay, so we're going to talk about Mozilla for a little while now. So it's going to be 30 or 40 minutes. And so please ask questions all along the way. Um, as I was going through this, uh, I went back to board decks. And some other things, I'm going to share actual board decks with you. So we'll talk about some specifics. What I realized is the context is the world is so different in 2015 than in 2004 when Firefox launched. I need to explain it a little bit. So we're just going to talk about the period from 2005 to 2008. There's other interesting stuff on both sides of that, but this is the period we'll talk about. So here's some context. So 2004, and nobody's going to remember this. So every instead of Macs out there, actually most people didn't have laptops in class so much in 2004, but a few did. But they were all Windows, and IE was something like 95% market share. And I, this is not an exaggeration, it's 95-96% market share. And that's what that looks like. So not only did they have market share, they also had 100% dominant distribution, which is IE came bundled on your machine. So you got a machine, and you got a browser, and there was no app store, there was no, no nothing really. And so if you wanted something else, you had to say, you had to make a decision. You had to say, I don't want this thing, I want another thing that's like it, and I'm going to go find it to get it. Which... Sounds ridiculous in, in 2015, but that's where it was. And so most people, in Microsoft included, said, well, the browser is done. Microsoft killed Netscape. Microsoft killed AOL. They launched IE. And in fact, Microsoft uh, disbanded most of the IE team after this. They moved them on to something called Silverlight, which obviously was super important. Um, <laughs> um, I make that joke a lot, so it's kind of a cheap shot, but whatever. I like Microsoft better now than I used to, but... Um, uh, they really, it's like they had the mission accomplished banner. It's like, okay, we won the web, let's move from IE6, which we launched in, in 2001, and they moved off. And they really didn't launch IE7 until something like six years later. Um, that's an amazing, amazing thing. So, by the end of 2004, Far Mozilla had built Firefox 1.0, and I guess I should mention some things about Mozilla. So, this was an unlikely thing to matter. Most people had decided Mozilla didn't care about 2004, because Mozilla actually started in 1998 as part of Netscape. And this is like a pretty, pretty prehistory. So a lot, for me, this all stuff, all as I was putting this together, it all seems exactly like yesterday. I can see all these decision points. For you, all of you, it seems like prehistory from when you were kids or before you were born, maybe. No, nah, probably not before you were born. Close. But, um, but so for Mozilla, this was this open source project inside Netscape. And the way that Mozilla started was a guy named Bob Lisbon who was running the, the Netscape project he was thinking about how to compete with Microsoft. 
and this is a big, this is a really important lesson. He was up late one night, and he was worried that Netscape wasn't going to keep pace with Microsoft because Microsoft is hiring a ton of people and starting to spend more and more and more engineering resources. And so software used to have this thing called an about box, and the about box would list the engineers' names on it who worked on it. And so one night, he went, off, he went through all the Microsoft products that he competed with from the Netscape GM, and he started counting each of the people's names. And he had 200 people working on products in Netscape, and he quit when he got to about 2,500 people he had counted at, Netsc- at Microsoft. And so from him, he looks at it and says, they have more than 10 times the people we have in 1998. There's no way for us to compete symmetrically. And so we have to figure out how to do something different. And so from Bob, and this is well before my time at Mozilla, but from Bob, what I learned is this idea. It's like you have to compete asymmetrically in a market that exists. You cannot compete on the same field. And so like the war metaphor is you have to be more like the Americans, not the British, marching in lines. You have to be guerrillas. Um, you have to, uh, guerrillas, G-U-E-R, not G-O-R-I. But both are good. Um, so anyway, so, so that, that was Bob. And they started this open source project. And the open source project of Mozilla um, they really wandered around the wilderness for a long, long time. They had this thing called the Mozilla, uh, Mozilla Suite, which uh, was a browser and an HTML editor and an email client because obviously you want all those things. Everybody who was browsing the web obviously needs an HTML editor. Uh, that, was the, that was the thinking. I swear to God, this is what the world was like. You, I, you think I'm joking. But, um, and your email client was edited in HTML, whatever. So, um, so you, you play forward. And in 2003 and 2004, there was a split in the Mozilla project and some people, uh, Blake Ross and some others, what, they, what their insight was is that most, maybe what people wanted was not an HTML editor. Maybe they just wanted a fast browser. And that's when Firefox uh, was born. And that was a very, very contentious debate. But by 2004, by the end of 2004, November 2004, they came out with Firefox 1.0, and it was kind of a lightning bolt. It had, there had been no new browsers, really. Like the Opera guys will, this is the part where the Opera guys will start to complain. I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. Um, but really, no new important browsers for a, lot, for a number of years. And this is what it was. It was it was fast, pop-up blocking, tab browsing, and integrated search. And so um, the feature that most people came for was pop-up blocking. And if you guys were, anybody who was browsing the web in 2004, you'd browse for a few hours and you'd have 200, literally 200 little windows pop up with ads uh, back before content blockers. The sustainable feature is that people really love tab browsing. And Mozilla was really the, 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 the browser that popularized tab browsing. This is the part where the Opera guys really, really screamed. Because they, they probably came up with it first. It's hard to tell. But the trigger was that um, IE was insecure. So because, as a consequence of IE not investing in their team, Internet Explorer not investing in their team, Microsoft, um, they had security holes. And so U.S. CERT, uh, security, a security um, part of the arm of the government, said you should not just use IE. You should have IE plus something. And so there, were, there was important product design happening, but there was a hot trigger that happened that enabled it to, to succeed. And so when they launched, so the key here, though, is the product is important, but not enough. So competing asymmetrically is the thing. So they launched in November of 2004, and naturally they launched an ad. This is the craziest thing, and it's the story. So um, Mozilla said, well, we're going to launch. We don't have any money we have a lot of community. We have a lot of people who work on this with us. We have, it's an open source project. We have localizers in every country. So we're just going to do a fundraise. And this is one of the funny things about history is that as soon as, anytime you have a weird idea that works, like within a few months, it becomes not a weird idea at all. It becomes the status quo. And so this is a Kickstarter campaign, essentially well before Kickstarter. And so that doesn't seem like a shocking development. This is a shocking development. So what Mozilla did is they ran a thing for 30 days and said, if you send us $10, we'll put your name in the New York Times. 
And so if you look at that, um, so that's what happened in the New York Times. So what they said is, we know people love Firefox, and it turns out they raised twice as much money as they needed, and so they had a second page, which was actually an ad you could actually read. Um, but they, sh they, they shipped this in November, and it, was, it got so much attention, and a couple of things happened. Number one, everybody whose name was in it went and bought a New York Times and showed it to their mom and their dad and said, look, 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 my name's the New York Times. And then the second thing that happened <clears throat> uh, is that we got a bunch of process stories written. And a process story is not about Firefox itself, but it's like, look what this crazy company is doing to get attention. So there, there were a lot of stories about us using this ad. And so there was just a big boom, and it resulted in 10 million, 10 million uh, downloads in the first month. So the key for us was that, and this is before I got there, but the key was that Mozilla was the community. It was the community, that's, that's the asymmetric uh, advantage. And <clears throat> so the, the, the way to take advantage of that is let, let people see themselves in Mozilla and help them help. Give them tools so they could help, so they could proselytize, so they could evangelize. And what happened as a result is that people felt ownership because they say, my $10, I sent it in, my name is in the paper, now I want to go put Mozilla, I want to put Firefox on my library computers, my school computers, and that's literally how it spread and became a little bit of a movement. And a lot of the, a lot of the language uh, that early Mozilla used and a lot of the techniques they used were um, derived from a lot of the things that political campaigns do, grassroots campaigns. And again, this was off the, the core insight, was the community was everything for Mozilla. Was Chris? Uh, stuff from grassroots campaigns by design? Or yeah, so the, Chris's question was, was it doing, was doing stuff similar as political campaigns and grassroots campaigns by design or was it uh, accidental? They looked at the Howard Dean campaign, which again, no, nobody's going to exactly remember. <laughs> um, but the Howard Dean campaign was special because it was the, one of the first campaigns that raised retail, raised money retail, raised money in 10, 50, $100 increments. And so they really understood how to, they made a real connection until Howard Dean did this thing in, in a forum like this where he made a funny noise and his campaign uh, went back to this after that. Like that after this, after that. But, um, but yeah, it was very intentional. And then later, the Obama for America campaign in 2008 took a lot of cues from both the growth of Facebook and the growth of Mozilla. And that, that informed a lot of how I think about technology spread now, which I think seems obvious, which is it looks like political and um, social spread as much as anything else. Sure. How and why did you Yeah, well, so... Um, Hang on a second. So the question was, how and why did the initial community form to, uh, to get to that point? So I'll get to that in just a second. So uh, key, let people see inside. And this was successful. The launch worked. 10 million downloads in the first 30 days, which 10 million was a big number even then. Growth was super strong. The financials were super strong because of, of another thing that happened, which is the product, what the Mozilla folks realized very early is that search was becoming a first-class way to access the web. It used to be just a URL bar where you typed a long URL. Um, and what they realized is that more and more people were typing just words into search. And this is early. This is a time before it was obvious that Google was going to win. It was Google and Yahoo were the two, and I'll talk, talk about that in just a second. Um, and they built uh, Google and Yahoo and search into the search box. So Mozilla was the first browser, I think, to have a search box in the top right. And we worked the deal with Google to be able to, to pay for, pay for uh, ads and clicks, basically. And so as a result, the financials were strong, very, very clear market, product market fit, and only 15 people in the organization. There was many, many more people outside the organization because it had been a long period of buildup where 
you had probably hundreds of people contributing source code outside the, outside the organization. You had dozens of localizers, localizing into French and Italian and German and Polish. Um, and then uh, really it was just, and then lots and lots of people took ownership by a campaign called Spread Firefox, which I'll show you, which was, if you want to make this thing work, you all should help us spread it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the question was, how do you convince, security is kind of a, a amorphous uh, esoteric benefit, and how do you convince users that they should care? Um, the press did it for us. So um, Walt Mossberg did a review, said Firefox 1.0 is incredible, and it happens to be not be insecure like IE. And you get a lot of that stuff, and so it's very, very hard to say, for you to say, well, we're super secure, much, much easier for other people to talk about it. And one of the things about Mozilla, you know, one of the commonalities in the first, um, in the first sessions was people said, don't buy into the PR, PR, don't spend money on PR. Mozilla was not like that. So like we felt community and messaging and PR, partly due to the guy who's CEO now, a guy named Chris Beard, which is just strong communication, strong messaging and direct to the audience was always gonna be the way to do it. And so we had a lot of people telling it for us. And so you said, well, if you want to spread Firefox to win, tell your school, Principal, tell the IT guy at school that Firefox is more secure. Tell the library administrator it's more secure. And that really caught in a way that, I, that security doesn't usually. That's right. So this is when I got there. And um, I'll just tell a brief little story because um, it'll illustrate what product market fit feels like. So I was actually looking for a different job. So in 2005, I left my startup and I wanted to do VC. And it turns out like being a VC is a fairly quirky uh, job seeking process. Super, super quirky. Um, and I went to Mozilla to help because I knew Mitchell from another board that I was on. And I went in to see them maybe three months, four months after Firefox had launched because I was on another board with her. And she always seemed very tired. I'm like, how's it going? She's like, well, there's a lot going on. I'm really tired. I got to go. Bye. And so I just went to visit Mozilla. And I went in. I had this amazing session where she said, well, here's, here's all the stuff that's happening. Here's all the help we need. How can you help us? I'm like, okay, let me think about it. And so I went home because I was unemployed. Uh, at the time, and so I did a PowerPoint. <laughs> this seems ridiculous in, uh, in retrospect. So I did a little PowerPoint. It's like, here's what I think you should do. I think you should think about this and this, and here's a framework for how you think about it. And I sent it back to uh, Mitchell, who's the founder of Mozilla, and then Chris Beard, who's now the CEO. And I, I heard nothing back from them. And one of the things when you're unemployed, like time goes super slowly. You're like, oh, I wonder if they got my mail. Maybe they don't like me. What's wrong with it? Is something wrong with me? Do they not like what I'm doing? And I'm like, I just sent a PowerPoint deck to like an open source project. That was probably wrong. Um, so anyway, so, um, so I went back and I, I had another session with them. And it was an amazing session. We talked about all the things they could do and all the ways we, um, that they could go from there. And I'm like, this, haha, this time, I went home. This time, not a PowerPoint. So I wrote a long email about all the things they should do. And I sent it in two weeks, nothing. And I'm like, well, what the hell? Like, do they just not care? And are they, are they schizophrenic? Do they like me in person and not like me? In, like, are they, are, they pass, are they conflict avoidant? Don't want to tell me they don't like me? It was very weird. It was very weird, um, I thought. And, you know, being unemployed, you're very self-conscious and you're not quite sure what's going on. And so, um, so I went back and I just started showing up. Um, and I just said, well, they're, if they're not going to answer my mail, there's something important happening here, so I'm just going to start showing up and helping. And this is, not, this is definitely not what I want. I don't want to work for a nonprofit, open source, granola thingy, but I can help a little bit. So, um, so I started showing up, and then Reed and I were talking about it a lot. And to Reed's credit, he's like, you know what's happening. Like, they, 
this is working. Like, this is a good thing to, this is a good thing to join. And he and I debated it for a little while, and then I made probably the best, best career decision, which is said, well, I threw up on my hands, and I thought I would join. But I was still on the fence, and um, I remember this again, there was like 10 or 12 people, and it shows how, <laughs> how busy it was and how, how much the wheels were coming off the place. So Mitchell and Brendan, the co-founder of the Inventor of JavaScript, and then Chris, the head of marketing and product, but now the CEO in 2015, um, they were going to see Jerry Yang at Yahoo. And uh, so they said, well, why don't you come along? John, the guy who's kind of a consultant just hanging around. And so, a little weird, right? Um, so it's going to be an interesting meeting. Just come with us. And so we, should, we go, and 45, so we're, we go for an hour-long meeting, and four, 45 minutes in, Jerry hadn't shown up yet. And Jerry was like, I don't know, CTO or chief strategy officer or something like that of Yahoo. He's a pretty important guy. Um, and 45 minutes, he didn't show up. He had his people there, and we were making small talk. And the reason, but then he comes in at 45 minutes and he started yelling at us almost immediately. And um, I kind of tuned out. It was a funny thing. So Jerry's a lovely guy and he's a good friend and we invest together and he built this nice building over here. And um, he's a really nice guy, but he was really angry, really angry at us. And what he was angry about is that Google was built into the de as the default to Firefox search and Yahoo was the second choice. But what we knew about default is like people don't change them. And so the, Yahoo and Google were locked in a battle for who was going to win search. Google was getting traction, but Firefox accelerated Google's traction. And that was making a real difference. But I remember while Jerry was yelling at us, um, uh, just thinking, it's like, man, if, I can, if we can get a guy like Jerry, like very successful, so angry, like we're probably doing something interesting. And so it was like while he was yelling at us, I said, well, I probably should stop, like, stop screwing around and just join. And, that, and that's when I decided to join. And, and that's a <laughs> totally true story. And so, so at the same time, I joined, uh, rejoined the board, and then we, we recruited a guy named Joey Ito, who runs the Media Lab at MIT now, to, to join the board as well. And we were off to the races. So a small organization, we started growing. So 2005, Mozilla had a few percent it was a nonprofit. Nobody understood what to make of that. It was open source for consumers, which again was not common in the slightest in 2005. And suddenly it was a big deal and people started noticing it. But people really didn't understand it much. But we were spreading because we had a global community that we empowered and we loved and we invested in and invested in and invested in. So, and this, here's what it looks like. So spread Firefox, this is actually from about 2005. You can see, see hey, haha, we ran, we won. Like we made no days left, we have $250,000, 10,000 names. Um, you want to be in the Boston Globe? We're doing a story about Firefox supporters. And we, we did this get Firefox buttons, which showed up everywhere on the web uh, uh, pretty fast. This looks so janky uh, by 2015 standards. But I'll tell you, like, the thing about communities is you want to, be, you want to look important enough that people should give a damn about, about whether you win or not. But you want to look fragile enough that people feel like if they don't help, you might not succeed. And so in the, the analogy that I'll use is um, in 2008 when the election was happening, um, I remember, so I was CEO of Mozilla, I guess. Yeah, I was CEO of Mozilla, and I went and did phone bank calls for Obama. Um, I called a bunch of people in western Pennsylvania that were interesting. Um, no offense, just they were interesting to talk to. Um, the, uh, and, but I went because I'm like, man, I really want that guy to be our president. And he might not win if I don't go make calls today. And that's a bizarre thing to think, right? 
But that's the essence of community and that's the essence of getting involved. Because if I felt like it was stronger and didn't need me, well, I had plenty of other stuff to do. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so I'll talk about the community of Mozilla in a little bit, but it, it's, it's everywhere. So there were open source contributors, there were localizers into different languages, there were um, people who were installers and doing customer support for, it was everywhere. It really felt much like a political movement. So everything, everything you can think of was really uh, community. And this was still an organization that probably had 15 people on the payroll. Okay? Um, so... Here are some critical decisions that we made. And this is, this is the crux of it. So we decided, I was employee number 15 or so, and Mitchell and I decided that hiring and getting great talent was key. So what that means is we had to figure out how to pay people, which was, we had a pretty good relationship with Google, so that was working. And we decided to pay people pretty well, but we never wanted to win on salary. And so that's explicit because we were happy to lose people who wanted more salary. So if we had a conversation where people said, man, it's so in 2005, it was like us and Facebook was growing and Google was growing. And if people came in and said, gosh, I'd really like to work for you, but Google's offering me $10,000 more a year, the answer was always go to Google. And we didn't care. It was fun. So this is a different environment. Um, so 2015, uh, you, I think the guidance you'll get mostly is you shouldn't lose people over $10,000. But and so it's not apples to apples advice. For us, what it was is our North Star about whether people wanted to be there or not. And so if people wanted to be there for comp, then we didn't want them. If people wanted to be there because of the mission around opening the web, then, and they were willing to be you know, comped well, but not perfectly, we were happy to have them. So that was part of it. The second thing, oh, and as a result, like we brought on some people who are, Unbelievable. You know, the first person I went out and got is a guy named Mike Schreffer, who's the CTO at Facebook now. Um, you know, Dan Portillo, who runs talent for us at Mozilla, was our first recruiter. Brad Record, who runs talent at Sequoia, was our second recruiter. Um, the, this is just such a list. Like, once you decide to go get talent and you decide to go get people who are wired a little funny and want mission over just comp, um, life got better. Sure. Uh, would you say that you wouldn't advise people to do that? Yeah, I, so the question is whether I would advise people to do that today. I think that um, I think you should figure out what you care about and what, and what your North Star is on people and hiring and figure out what that test is and be true to it. So, you know, there's startups that I'm involved with that we, <laughs> we pay way higher than I would really be comfortable with. On the other hand, like I would be less comfortable if we lost the people they were trying to hire. There's a search company that I'm involved with, for example, where we just pay over the top because that's how you get great search people. And so I think it's horses for courses, I'll say a lot, which is, or different strokes for different folks, whatever you want to say, but like, I think every startup's a little bit different. And the question is like, which are your North Stars? And you, it's good to write them down. It's good to understand. Everybody understood this. So I never got a hiring manager or recruiter saying, should we go over the top on Facebook's offer? Should we go over the top on Google? Never. So other questions? Okay. The second thing is that we decided we were not going to all be in local. And this was uh, self-defense. It was also uh, sort of true to our DNA. The, in an open source project, in the best ones, you have people all around the world who are contributing. And we decided that rather than try to compete with other people in Silicon Valley for talent, with Google and Yahoo and Yahoo and Zynga and Microsoft and everybody else, we would, just, we would find the best people who were already contributing 
we'd hire them and we'd try to hire their friends. As a result, we, have an, we had an office, with, there was somebody in uh, New Zealand, for example, in Auckland, who was one of our best contributors. And he's like, well, I think I'm, I'm contributing now a lot, but I think I'm gonna have to ratchet it down. I said, I'm gonna get this job. And they're like, well, well Robert, Rob, why don't you just come work for us? He's like, well, I don't really wanna work on my own. I'm like, Rob, why don't we just start, on, like, do you have any friends? And he's like, I've got a ton of friends and they're all PhDs in computer science. I'm like, Rob, like, why don't we start an office? And so we, as a result, we have this office in New Zealand, in, in Auckland. And we have an office in um, uh, Berlin, an office in Paris, an office in London, and one in Tokyo. And our point of view was we were going to, our, our hiring strategies, we were going to find the best people who were motivated, not by money, but by the community and by the mission. We were going to figure out where they were in the world and how they wanted to live their lives, and we were just going to live that way. And so as a result, we got this big distributed company. It wasn't a philosophy that I love distributed companies, because I don't. I mean, there are other people who really do, like Matt Mullenweg from Automatic really loves distributed companies. I don't love them. I think they're a humongous pain in the ass. Um, for us, it was how to take our, 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 our challenge and turn it into an advantage. We ended up with a lot of people in a lot of places. So I learned a lot about employment law, which is super boring. Um, and, then, uh, and then always treat communities insiders. So, you know, we, lots of times, we would let people speak to the press on behalf of us who didn't work for Mozilla. They could have business cards, you know, a lot of this stuff. And it's because we were trying to get as many people owning the product, owning uh, success as possible. Because, again, we needed to compete asymmetrically with Microsoft. So the question was, how do we compete? How do we get assets in a way that they can't, do. And the funny thing is, like, they just didn't even recognize it. Like, for us, like, when Microsoft is this big software company, and they see this weird, like, political movement full of, like, people in Poland and Germany, and like, what, they're like, what the hell is that? Um, and it just didn't look at all what they thought a challenge would look like, which meant that they didn't really pay attention until too late. But mostly, like, the community was what built Mozilla in the first place. It's why Mitchell and Brendan committed to being a nonprofit. They just wanted to say to the community, we'll never take advantage of you. We'll always put a poor money back in. Sure. Yeah. Wow, what makes you think it didn't... What makes you think it didn't get chaotic? Um, so I've got a different presentation. So this question is, like... Um, uh, the, the community was so diverse. Uh, how did you keep it from getting chaotic? And I'll tell you, it was motherfucking chaotic. It was, um, <laughs> there's, no, there's no way to put this, like, gently. Um, it, uh, to most humans that have ever worked in companies, walking into Mozilla, they're like, what the hell is happening? Because so many people are going in so many different directions. And we could talk about that for hours and hours and hours. But again, like, what you do is you figure out, like, what's the DNA of the place and what is our superpower, and you figure out how to feed that. And um, language turned out was okay. Like, everybody had to speak English. Everybody was living on uh, um, Bugzilla, which is Mozilla's uh, not amazing uh, bug tracking system. Uh, but it was one of the first of its kind. Um, and then we just, we just, we had a lot of beers together, and we flew people in the same place a lot. Like one of the things that over time is that I had a travel policy, which was anytime anybody wanted to get the group to, a group together, they could in whatever city they wanted to do it, and it could do it in Toronto or Australia or um, Sydney or Tokyo or wherever. And I, my my promise is that I would yell if people were spending too much money, and I just never they never spent too much money. Everybody's very responsible, but I said, look, if you need to spend time with your group, do it. Don't ask anybody, just do it. And so we just, we just did a lot like that. Um, 
Yeah, this is a theme. Ignore everything else. Like every, every six months, people said to me, man, Boeing would totally adopt Firefox if we just built these horrible features into it. And, um, and, we, <laughs> and then like six months later, it would be Fidelity. would do this thing, and it would be amazing. And um, our center of gravity was we need to build software that humans give a damn about. And if we do that, the rest of it will take care of itself, and the enterprise will adopt in spite of us not having these things. And that turned out to be true. Um, that's also let me see what was happening with Dropbox early, and it's why I got involved with Dropbox. We were seeing the same kind of behavior. And then our mission. Our mission was not pure market share. It was how do you build, how do you make the web more participatory? Okay, questions good. All right. So and then for the period we're talking about, I got there in the middle of 2005 when about 15 people. And we'll go through about the middle of 2008, which is about 150 people. And then, you know, we got bigger over time. Then we got a little fatter. Um, so move, an move ahead another year from 2005 to 2006. Market share is a little more than 10%. We had about 75 million MAUs and 25 million DAUs in a product that is not viral in any way. There was no app store. There was no, like, send a friend, SMSing. What, like, there was none of that. And so this was all organic, all political. The organization had doubled to amazing 30 people. And I remember Mitchell saying, well, when I got in, Mitchell um, said, well, we're glad to have John. I'm not sure how many people we really need here. And, and then we got to 30. He's like, well, maybe we'll get to 40 people. But I can never imagine us getting to 100 people. And it's one of those things where, you know, you just see growth and you see it happening. And you're trying to figure it out. And things, were just, things just work very, very, very well on the Internet when they work. Um, and, and you start to find things. But here's the key. So with product market fit, your issues change. Everybody notices you in a different way. So, uh, so this is what it looks like now. So this is better. It's not great. And this, I, was, I told you Opera would, would grasp us and stuff. Um, so Safari was only on, only on the Mac, and IE, uh, and IE was 83%, which still seemed okay to Microsoft. They hadn't really put the group back together, that kind of thing. <coughs> so with product market fit, um, relationships change. So this is some actual board deck excerpts uh, from 2006. So, and the board at that time was myself. I don't know, I wasn't the CEO yet. Uh, Mitchell, Baker, Brendan Ike, who invented JavaScript, uh, Reed Hoffman, and um, Ellen Semenoff, who runs a company called Schmoop now. And we, I remember we were talking, it's like, well, should we get an EA for Mitchell, like to help her scale? Should we get an EA for John? What about Shrep? And so um, project managers, we need, really needed a VP of operations, maybe somebody, a lawyer who knew some stuff. Um, and like, this is the actual stuff. This is actually how we started the board meeting. It's like, we probably need some more people. What do you think? Um, and then, um, and this is what it feels like to be um, in uncharted territory. We were like, well, what's, what's a good goal? So we're at 12, 13% now. Is 20% good? Like, I don't know. And is 20% achievable? I don't know. Here's what we said six months ago. Let's recheck it. And one of the things that Alan was talking about is being iterative. Like that part of what setting, the reason why you set goals is to learn to get better at setting goals and learn to get better at leading you. And so a lot of times when you set goals, your first set of goals will be terrible. It's a little bit like when you go to the gym the first time, you're trying to exercise and your muscles don't all fire together. And so you're trying to teach yourself in your organization how to make commitments and live up to them over time. And so goal, you get better at setting goals over time too. And, and one, of the, one of my rules is you never ever like say, like in your goal period, whatever your goal was, you are black and white about whether you hit it or not. If you hit 98% of your goal, you missed it. Um, now you can, and then you could interpret it over time, but you had to be very, very clear about what goal, what the goal was when you started, 
what you what modifications you made to the goal and whether you hit it or not live there. Sure. What's the messaging like for the team when they know that you're setting goals sort of without knowing whether the goal is right? Yeah. So the question is, how do you explain? How do you motivate the team? How do you have them understand goals? How do you explain to them what's happening? And you know, my deal. Uh, and how do you help them? How do you figure out what, what, uh, how to feel like when they miss a goal? We, over time, you get better at this. For me, it was repetition and talking and just being very, very open. So we had weeklies every week. On Monday, we all had lunch together, and I got up and talked every, every Monday for years. Um, every quarter, we would talk about goals and what we hit and what we didn't hit. Um, it turned out we, we, we ended up, it's funny, like other companies are like this too. We landed at about seven, if we hit 71% of our goals, give or take, that was about right. That was a pretty good quarter. If we had 66% of our goals, it was a kind of a shitty quarter. And so it's a funny, funny zone, but I've talked to other people who said that too. Like you want enough goals that are stretched that you're trying for more. And so I actually didn't like, like I remember our IT group, they hit 100% of their goals every time. I'm like, you guys have to stop doing this because it means you're not shooting for enough. Um, so you're not stretching enough. So, so for us, we just talked it out a lot. We talked a lot about, I was very open with board decks. So I was very open about what we talked to with Reed and, and, and Ellen about. And I said, here's what we're doing. And then the other thing that became very clear over time is that market share is a lagging indicator of success. So on the internet, market share can keep going up even when your fundamentals are not great. And so the metaphor I use is we're trying to teach ourselves how to look around corners a little bit and be predictive of issues coming down the pike. Right, so we were trying to figure that out. Oh, and I was honest about goals. I'm like, look, nobody's ever done this before. There's never been an open source 20-person organization that's attacked Microsoft. Seems like it's going okay. Here's where we could probably do a little better. So, so when you miss the goal and you talk to the team about it, right, is it, hey, guys, like, we missed this goal. We need to, what do we need to do better in order to hit it next time? Uh, no. So I mean, when you get to this stage, you're starting to manage through pretty good managers. And so I was, C, uh, I was COO, but I had two or three or four excellent, excellent uh, VPs. So Mike Schreffer, you're never going to find a better in VP of engineering. Chris Beer, you're never going to find a better VP of marketing. Um, and, uh, you know, Justin Fitzhugh, who's running IT and ops. The, um, just you, as a management team, you want to you be good. As sub-teams, you want to be good. And you want to be open and transparent. So you start to do a lot of things in the organization to encourage people to be self-aware and aspirational and honest. Um, and, you know, it, it helped. That, like, we were winning. Like, we were really trying to do something that nobody had ever done before. Okay, sure. Can you give a little bit of context? I don't want to have you spend too much time on this, but why could you guys monetize an open source project? Why could we monetize an open source project? Yeah, like, why wasn't there an alternative, like, Chrome or whatever, the Firefox, that... There was. There's a project called KHTML, which became WebKit, that Apple was investing in. So we'll talk about that in a second. Um, but like, just the fact that there's a no, was another open source browser doesn't doesn't really have an impact on whether we were able to make money or not. We got users. We had tens of millions of users who used the product. They searched in the product. They clicked on ads. And so if that happens, the economic engine all runs, irrespective of what anybody else does. Okay. Well, we're probably like 30 or 40 well, now, earlier, yeah. Stepping back, 10 employees, two co-founders would bring in the COO. They didn't, so they brought me in. 
So <laughs> Andrew said it's weird that they brought a COO in, and they, and they didn't. They just brought me because I was hanging around, as I mentioned. Um, I was hanging around that I could help, and um, uh, we just got along. And so I came in with a title that was goofy. It was uh, I had just come off being a founder of my own company, and my title was Vice President of Business Operations and no, Vice President of Business Development and Operations, which, you know, who knows what that means? It doesn't mean anything. And, um, and so nobody really knew what to make of that. Um, I just started sh showing up. Like, I think a lot of startups is just showing up and doing the work that needs to get done, whether it's moving desks or ordering food or making business deals or whatever it is. So I just started showing up and we started building a company. What does that mean? Just like literally just show up and sit down at a desk? <laughs> well, so did I literally just show up and sit down at a desk? Yeah, I mean, kind of. I said, hey, Mitchell, is it okay if I come by? Um, it was okay. Sure. Once that people on I talked about mission and hiring, like why people work there, can you give us two minutes on that? Mission and hiring? Why I went there? Because the web sucked. The web sucked in 2004, and they were going to fix it. Um, all my developer friends started using Firefox. Uh, that's about when something called um, uh, the predecessor for... Um, this when uh, HTML mail came out. So right before Gmail, there was one that got popped Odd 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 Post came out by Ethan Diamond. Um, Stanford guy, I think. And... Um, it's just that you could see it. You'd see that the web was dead and dying. And this doesn't feel ridiculous. This feels ridiculous to everybody, but it was just dead. The IE was really terrible. And um, the, my deal is I couldn't stop thinking about it. And so I couldn't stop thinking about the web and the impact and, the, and my skills kind of matched with what the holes in the organization at the time. And so I went. But let's, this is more interesting stuff. So let's get some forward. So 13% market share, give or take. Varies a bunch, but world, uh, worldwide, about 25 million users. We weren't sure whether growth had slowed or not. And like part of the thing is we didn't have any data systems that were working. And so uh, one of the first things we did is we hired a guy uh, named Ken Kovash, uh, who worked for the Free, Free Economics guy. And we started building data systems so we could tell what the hell was going on. So, and then uh, it turns out it hadn't slowed, but we didn't know that. Um, so we put it in the board deck. Uh, and we're just trying to figure it out. Um, and then... It was clear that Firefox 1.0, that had been about 18 months before, was diminishing. IE7 and Safari on Windows was coming, ooh, um, which we thought was a big deal. Apple releasing a browser on Windows seemed like a big deal. Um, and then maybe iTunes. I, it was, um, like I mentioned about not knowing your competitors, it's really hard to see. So this is actual board stuff, right? And then we were trying to figure out where do we find more users. And so what happens is you get bigger, your numbers get bigger and bigger. You try to figure out where the hell can we find more users. And like it becomes less interesting. Like once you have 100 million users, like it's like, oh, I can only get a million users that way? That doesn't seem very interesting. And this becomes an innovator's dilemma problem. But the, the real thing is that I want to talk about is that when you find product market fit, people who were previously clearly your friends, you become frenemies kind of sort of. And so it becomes more complicated. Um, to use Facebook terminology. So for us, Google was starting to think about this as we were starting to gain market. And Google's a huge ally. Sergey and Larry made Firefox possible economically. Um, Eric Schmidt was very supportive. But they were trying to think, what they were realizing in 2005 is that the browser disintermediated them um, between their customer. The browser was in the way. And whoever controlled the last touch point to a, to a user wins. So they were nervous about this. And so they felt like it was critical to their destiny, but critical but not in their own hands. They didn't like that we were kind of independent and didn't really care what they thought. Um, that was a challenging part of the relationship. And they were not sure what was going to happen when IE7 came out. Um, 
we knew WebKit and Safari and Windows were coming. We were wondering what was happening. And for them, anything more than IE and one other browser, they thought was going to fracture the market. So they started thinking about it more and more. So the, they started doing scenario planning, and we were kind of piecing this together. But for them, like if, if IE has 80% and Firefox has 20%, well, that's okay, but not great. If Apple has 20%, that seems bad for Google, even in 2005. Um, if it's a split, then the web dies again because there's too much spread. And then they were hoping that we would start to use something called WebKit, which was Apple's, Apple's version of open source technology, and we were using a thing called Gecko rendering engine. And so it just got complicated. So this is worrisome, and we more or less decided to stay the course and not, not so we decided to keep um, our own technology, not move to the flavor of the day, because our mission was to have a diverse, um, heterogeneous web. The, we decided to invest in more and more and more localizations, and we decided it's like we need to not be pigeonholed as just a product. We need to keep being a movement and keeping a community. So those are like the three clear crisp decisions that came out of that. And that manifests itself in this way. At the same time, we were, this is how we were talking, what happens is you get bigger is your organizational complexity goes way up. And so I remember we had this meeting in 2007. I said, look, two years ago, we were 15 people. We had 15 million users. We had some money. We were working on Firefox One, you know. And then look at us now and like the big org charts. And org charts are awful and mostly necessary. But we just started getting really complicated and hard to figure out. So this, is, this is the preface for a reorg that I did. Um, but then I said, look, oh, here's, where we, here's where we were two years ago, and here's where we are now. And just to give people a sense of why it was feeling so dislocating and why people were feeling alienated and why people were feeling a little bit disconnected from mission. And so a lot of what the job of the chief is during this growth period is to help people feel connected to the company and connected to mission. Um, and so this is another way we think about, as many people as were, we talk about one developer, somebody asked about the community and where the community came from. One developer, maybe 90 people on the whole team. You know, we had hundreds of people contributing the source code and the open source code. This was before GitHub. We had thousands of contributors. We had 10,000 people who were downloading the alpha every night. And this was also new. Like most people weren't shipping software. So literally we would have interns come in. They would write code. It would get checked in and like 10,000 people would be using it the next day which is a little terrifying um, uh, when I'm coding. Um, but we had you know, millions and millions and millions of monthly users. So that's how we thought about it. And then, like I said, things that seem big aren't. I wrote this blog post. Steve gave a, um, a keynote where he said, this is the state of, uh, this is the state of uh, browsing now. This seems like this is bad. So we're going to make it more like that. Um, by, by launching Safari on Windows. And I'm like, whoa. Like, this is before everybody watched keynotes, uh, Steve Notes. But, like, I was watching it. And I'm like, did he just say that? And, like, this is the, my favorite, one of my favorite things. Anyway, so, um, and it, it's just sort of, I, I used to work at Apple. I love Apple. I buy many of all their things. But, um, but they've never been very good at the web. And they were, certainly were not good at the web or understanding the web then. They thought Firefox was kind of this dirty, weird, commie, <laughs> I'm not kidding. Um, and so I wrote a thing about them and Firefox, and it got, it got me on fake Steve Jobs, which is very exciting. Um, anyway, but it, it just turned out to matter at all, because who wants to fray on Windows? So until um, so we launched Firefox 3, and what we did is we went back to our roots, and we said, we're going we're gonna to do a Guinness record for the most downloads in 24-hour period. Um, but we, but the, the pitch was, be part of the movement. Come in and be part of it. This is you. Let, again, we went back to how do you see yourself in this? How do you get your friends to do it? And so 
you know, we had people sign up. They said, I pledge to download Firefox. There's Shrep right there. Um, and then we had Firefox counters. This is like the first three or four days where we got 20 million downloads, which is a big number then. And then this is the map, which actually got us in trouble because there are countries like Iran and Syria on there. Like you can see Iran is a huge downloader, which turned out to maybe have been illegal. Uh, so we talked to the government for a while about it. Anyway, so, and then this is the key. So we launched in 70 languages for IE7. I, IE7 launched in five. Microsoft, giant corporation, launched in five. We launched in 70 because we had a huge activated volunteer community that wanted to. We launched in Mongolian day of. <laughs> and so this is what happened. The piece of the web was so much bigger in the, thousand, in the 2000s than it had been in the 90s that IE came and dominated it, and Firefox was so much bigger. Like, we all thought of Netscape as like this founding, like this shot from, shot from heaven, and this amazing uh, start. But Mozilla, Firefox, had so many more users by the time we got to scale than Netscape ever had. And that's probably mostly because the market got bigger. So, like, don't, don't take it the wrong way. Um, this, <laughs> we'll see if Mark keeps retweeting my, uh, my cor uh, Chris's course notes after this. Um, but then the, the gray is the rise of Chrome. So it worked. And we doubled down on community in, a lot, in many, many ways. Community is what sustained us. But there were, and so like the last thing I'll say about this is there were some things on the horizon. So in 2008, we were 150 people. I had just been named the CEO, give or take. And so the things we knew were coming were, we knew Chrome was coming. We knew that Google had, had decided in the interim that they had to take control of their own fate. And, they, and to their credit, they did it in a very uh, transparent way with us in a very collaborative way. So there were no surprises. Um, it's a little scary to compete with Google, but it was a good collaborative um, thing. And then Farmville, I swear to God, and I told Mark Pinkus this the other day, um, in Firefox, we, we made one mistake on our technology investment, which was uh, we had extension mechanism. Would, if you wrote an extension, it could do anything into the code of Firefox, which meant that um, a lot of people wrote extensions that were bad and would cause Firefox to eat a lot of memory, that would, mem would leak memory. And uh, we couldn't test them because we didn't have them. And so in our tests, Firefox was, was performing well and not leaking memory. But in many, many, many user uh, environments, it was performing badly. And so we had this problem with a user problem that we couldn't see. And a lot of it was Flash. Um, and then Flash, Flash's interactions with extensions really screwed us up. And Farmville went from zero to 70 million users in a year. It was a Zynga game that Mark uh, made. And it really highlighted what a crashy browser Firefox was. And so this cultural movement that went up like this really shot Firefox, and it really caused us issues. But that was still on the horizon, but mostly mobile. And mobile is the real existential issue that Mozilla is struggling with even today. So that's what I say about Mozilla. And then we've got about 15, 10, 15 minutes more with Alan's stuff. Any, any questions about Mozilla before we move over? Why is mobile not working for Mozilla now? I don't want to talk too much about it. What I would say is that uh, things happen, black swans happen because of particular context, particular points in time, and Microsoft. Microsoft's neglect and the PC platform being open enabled this thing to happen that Mozilla was just very, very, very well poised to jump into. And then they, they, they caught hold of the tiger's tail a little bit, and then they used everything they could to get people like me and Shrep and other people in and like, start building this movement. And so, um, I don't know, I feel very fortunate that they, were, that they had been wandering around for years and years to build this foundation that we could, we could do something with. Um, so anyway, sure. Looking back, it's often pretty easy to connect the options to show how everything 
Yeah, the question is, looking back, it's easy to connect the dots. Um, what, looking at, at the time, what were the most surprising things? Um, I think you saw them in the slides. Like, we didn't know whether we were winning or not. We didn't know how to, like, make sure that, like, people ran projects. And we were, we, the wheels always felt like they were coming off the place. Um, and so I don't know what the surprising things were. I think the surprising thing was just that I could step off the plane anywhere in the world, and there would be people who wanted to come talk to me. Like, there were people, the first time I went to Tokyo, um, this contributor like rode the train six hours each way just to have dinner with me, and the dude didn't speak English, right? <laughs> and he really, really cared, and a lot of Mozilla, a lot of his identity was tied up in Mozilla and Firefox and freedom of expression and changing the world, and there are not a lot of things like that. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. That was always surprising. I, 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 felt, I feel very humble even now thinking about that. I don't know. So the question is, like, how do you feel about nonprofit? So, like, maybe it's because you're uh, successful because you're a nonprofit. And I, I have a really hard time with this question because um, Mitchell and Chris and I are one of the only groups in the world ever to get 450 million users of anything. And people say, oh, sure, but you're a nonprofit. Of course you did that. <laughs> and I'm, uh, um, and so I have a hard time answering this question because, like, it sure didn't help. Like, like on balance, like, it would have been easier to be a company, um, but we only could have done what we did the way we did it. So I, I don't know how to answer that question other than <laughs> there were good days and bad days. Okay, you ready? Yeah. Good. So what was Mozilla's, I mean, not a, not a total focus on growth, but clearly grew really effectively. So we were talking earlier about um, scaling. So what is Mozilla's hypothesis? What's their growth hypothesis? Nope. So it's a really good browser. Nope, no, nothing scales on its own. But nothing scales on its own. So, sorry? The community. So basically there's this bet, and if you jump in here and correct me if I'm taking this wrong, but there's a bet basically that the community will actually be a primary carrier. If we built great things for communities to, to spread it, mm -hmm. that they would spread it. Yep. Um, because it made their lives better. Because basically it's spread by customer support people. So he said... I'm supporting my mom and my dad. I want them both on Firefox so I can support that and I can't support IE. Yeah. But it's that played out a hundred times. Right. So the, basically you've got a kind of built-in word of mouth thing. So this is what we're trying to achieve. But we're talking a lot about growth through value here. So we were talking about this a little bit earlier about how, how you grow effectively. If in fact your idea is you want to make sure that people feel like they're supporting each other and they bring each other onto the platform in order to provide security, in order to provide um, the ability to do tech support, uh, in order to support something that they actually care about. Those are reasons for people to come pick up the thing and use it. Obviously, you guys didn't do virality. You specifically called it out as something you There's didn't none. do. But, but, there, but obviously during this time, we had products which were already growing on the viral thing where basically the, the product itself was spreading itself. Um, so just really briefly on this, I mean, and unfortunately because we're short on time, I want to make sure we, we cover some of the, the specific lessons we can take away from Mozilla. But if you've got that product market fit, we talked about this earlier, if you've got a product market fit, you may not have it with all the users you actually care about. The question is, can you leverage the users where you have the product market fit in order to be able to drive stuff? So one possibility is if you've got a strong community who cares a lot about it, can they do their spread, your spreading for you? This, to the point of LinkedIn's initial audiences, was exactly the thing that we discovered. We basically discovered there's a set of people who really, 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 really cared about networking. They loved to meet new people, they loved to add connections and so forth, and they were primary drivers of our early growth. They were a place where we had product market fit literally from day one. So sometimes you gotta figure out a way to leverage that particular group of audiences. If you've got 
a place where you've got a bunch of people who do not find it valuable or just find it a nice product, they're not going to grow your product for you. Okay? So the question is, what do you, how do you take advantage of people who find it, want, they want it or they need it? A lot of people wanted Mozilla. They wanted that browser. Um, a lot of people like recruiters needed LinkedIn. Those people, can they be your drivers? Um, and these are your options, basically. You can improve your product fit for your nice groups. This was LinkedIn's primary resource for growing stuff because we had a lot of people who found LinkedIn nice and we became probably best in the world at driving viral growth because we had to because we wanted to optimize the experience for these folks. We wanted somebody who just found LinkedIn a nice to have. We wanted to make sure we converted that into as much growth as possible. But if you can take full advantage of those want-need groups, or, um, sorry, um, or, or you can basically optimize your nice growth, you can do a lot. Um, you guys also used a bunch of different mechanisms for getting out. You mentioned PR. So PR is actually a fantastic opportunity to grow, to build awareness. Taking out a newspaper ad is about as, uh, about as uh, um, uh, direct a growth and awareness mm -hmm. approach as you can possibly take. Incentives, now we have Facebook, LinkedIn, and other mechanisms by which you can actually spread something. So um, there's a little bit of a different story in the enterprise, and hopefully we'll get an opportunity to talk to folks about this as we go along. The enterprise has a different value. You're actually not trying to grow broadly around a large number of people. What you're trying to do is you're trying to build, grow among decision makers. So the things you need to do there are quite different. I listed out some of here primarily around beta customers and around building awareness basically through the things that beta customers actually pay attention to. So let me give you an example. At LinkedIn, we have a recruiter product. It actually represents a very large component of LinkedIn's revenue. How do you get to the place where people are actually adopting that at scale? Well, the growth, the growth hypothesis here is pretty straightforward. It's basically try it out. If you find real value from it, then basically somebody within the company will try to buy it essentially for their entire group. But you gotta get in front of that set of people. The first set of customers who actually see it, you have to be able to get to those people in some way. So the growth hypothesis is basically run a beta, then use those beta as light, what we call lighthouse customers, people who basically will go out and speak on your behalf about how valuable the thing actually is, and then take advantage of these places where decision makers are currently looking, marketer, your gardener, all that stuff. Um, and consumer bottoms up, we can talk about that at some point. Resourcing. So what did Mozilla have to do in terms of resourcing their growth? John talked about it quite a bit, about adding Shrep and a few other folks. And what were the kind of components of actually making Mozilla successful in terms of adding the people you actually need? I'll come back to that in a second. Yeah. They're very distributed. So very distributed. So the idea is you can get lots of, basically you go where the talent actually is. Um, what else? So, go ahead. They were mission-oriented, mission so they attracted the right kind of people. But they also found themselves, go ahead. You guys talk about us being vague. So, um, so we had a very, very specific set of metrics. So one was, um, are we, for each marginal hire, do we get more community leverage or less community leverage? So for each hire, is it an internal hire or is it a community-leveraged hire? Yep. So do we get more community members on the outside or fewer? And so um, we talked about that a lot which is if we were to hire an admin, we had to understand where we were going to make that up yep. in community. And so as a result, like a lot of jobs are about community, even admins. Yep. And I think it's a great point. So if you, if you break your hiring and your resource down into these two groups, like hiring people who can directly drive scaling, then picking people who basically be able to extend the community and be able to take on more resources is a key component of doing that. But you also had to pull on a few people who were basically about scaling people internally. Um, which is basically about protecting that group of people. 
I'm not going to go through the rest of these things just in time because we do we'll, want to talk we'll, about we'll, next we'll week. We'll share the other slides. You yeah. want to show what the, what the headlines are? Oh, yeah. So development technology, learning, learning systems, and then just basically a pattern of recruiting. OS2 is basically the very first time when you actually have to put recruiting functions in place because you need to be able to build outside your network. Yeah, a lot of this stuff comes from, uh, is related to the book that uh, Reed and Chris are writing, and so we'll, which we'll share out in the Dropbox. So we'll share out a draft of that. Um, please keep it to yourselves. Don't spread it around. Um, it's very, very early copy, but you'll get a sense of this framework uh, from the book. All right, this was next. Right, so the next two weeks, we're talking about OS2. So on Thursday, a very special person is coming named Jennifer Palka, who started a thing called Code for America. And you'll see a bunch of, it's a non, another nonprofit. It's the only nonprofit of the, of, the, of the course other than Mozilla. I'm on her board. Tim O'Reilly's on her board. I'm leaving to have dinner with them right now. <laughs> um, and it's about how do you start movements and how do you get projection of outcomes that's bigger than just the people inside. So she, there are about maybe 60 or 70 people now. So she's going through this phase. Um, after that, uh, Miriam uh, Nafisi from Minted, which is much, much bigger than you'd think. And then Shashir Marotra, who's working on a new project that is super secret. We'll see what he says about it. And then he uh, formerly ran product at YouTube. I think um, he will probably talk mostly about uh, people and recruiting and how you build a really robust culture. Oh, I had a slide about, uh, that's, what about Jen, Jen, yeah. that's what Jen looks like. Yeah, <laughs> she was also a deputy CTO for the White House uh, recently too. So she's, she's a killer. Yep. Um, so any so uh, three minutes left. Any questions or comments? Um, for LinkedIn, after you so it changed. So the question is like after we got to the early adopters, how did LinkedIn continue to grow? So the idea is that because viral spread is built into LinkedIn, basically everybody who comes in who wants to find value of it ends up bringing additional folks in. A lot of those people are well outside the early adopting class. So for the longest time, we basically had, at the very beginning, we had people joining cold and inviting their networks. Then we had everybody inviting each other. And then as people, we actually distributed our value more, and now we have more cold people coming and joining because they're coming for a very specific value. So in the early days, it was, I want a network. Then it was, oh, this is pretty cool. I can use it to recruit. Awesome, I want to do that or I want to get a job. Then the third part was, I'm beginning to find this on Google. I'm beginning to hear about it in the press. I'm actually going to get a job through it, so I'm going to sign up cold to do it. The only part we planned on from the beginning was the viral spread, which came from that early group. The part we didn't plan on was the amazing product market fit with that set of early adopters, which was a surprise, a good one too, and a necessary one. I right, yeah. I believe you said uh, you focused on the nice users at one point. Yeah. That you used that leverage. Um, what did you see from the nice users that told you you could do something with them rather than just focus on the wants and the uh, people who love it? So what do we see from the nice users? So, um, so we had a very specific theory around the nice users, which is that even if they were joining and inviting today, actually being a LinkedIn user was a low-impact sport. Basically, what you would do is you would be on LinkedIn. You would use it very, 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 very regularly. You would respond to things when people came to you. So basically, there was very little risk in being part of LinkedIn. But then the value started coming to you down the line. And every time you received value from the system, you woke up and became part of the active network. Thus the emails. Thus Wake the up. emails. <laughs> All right, emails. We, should, we should finish up. Yeah, we should finish up. I'll be around for a few minutes to answer further questions. All right, everybody. Thanks for class. See you, See you Thursday.